This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. A new poll, a new study that is out, says, well, at the risk of sounding cliche, we've got a good news, bad news story going on in this country. The good news, I think, although my next guest may tell me that I'm wrong on this one, but I think the good news is that nearly half of Canadians within the last quarter of last year reduced their household debt, brought it down, pulled it under control a little bit. That's the good news. The bad news, presumably, nearly 40%, so getting up again to the other half, added to it. And here's the thing. The folks who added to their household debt did enough adding that it actually brought up the total overall to a 3.3% increase. So on average, Canadians now owe almost $23,000 per person. And if you're thinking, hmm, that's not a lot. Well, that's every elderly person who is lying in a hospital bed who presumably should have their debts paid off by now, right down to every infant that was just born. Every single person in this country owes roughly $23,000. Scott Hanna is the president and CEO of the Credit Counseling Society. It's a group that helps people with debt and with getting out of trouble when they find themselves there. Scott, thanks for doing this today. Good evening, Scott. Good to be on the show. Uh, now, are you a pessimist or an optimist? When you hear a report like this that says, well, half the people are moving one direction and half are moving the other, do you look at this as a glass half full or a glass half empty? I'm, uh, I'm more of a realist in terms of looking at this, that uh, it is positive that half the nation has, is paying down their debt. It's very concerning that the other, another half aren't. And actually, when you look at the average debt loads of those individuals, it far surpasses the average of $23,000. You know, the other thing in, in this report that came out that concerns me is that, um, you know, Canadians who are later in life, those 56-plus, um, are still adding onto their debts. And typically when, when you're retired, that's a time when you shouldn't be carrying any debt at all. And yet we see a growth of 3% for those 65-plus to an average of just under $16,000. That's concerning. Let's go to the good news first, because again, there are two parts to this story. Let's go to the good news first, and that is the part that nearly half of Canadians have decided to rein it in a bit, to control their debt, to bring it down. Is that typical? Is that the number that we are used to hearing, or is that a higher than normal number of people who have decided to try and do something about what they owe? That is a very positive number, Scott. That, um, you know, all for, all levels of government have been stating for, stating for years, you've got to get your debt under control. So, when you consider uh, uh, that message, um, when I see that half are doing that, that's very positive. They're taking an active step in reducing their debt, and uh, that takes a lot of effort. And you know, when you realize that people who have a fair amount of debt and living expenses, to actually be able to bring it down and not add to it, that takes a lot of discipline. So I think for a lot of Canadians, they're doing the right things. Well, and when you talk about the discipline, what really struck me about this, and it didn't dawn on me when I first read this report, it, it sort of hit me later, they're talking about this, th- these figures are over the last quarter of 2017, which means this would overlap with the Christmas season, which typically is not a time when a lot of people are reining in their debt or their spending, they're adding to it. Certainly, and, that's, uh, and that really is positive. That's, uh, it tells you that there's some planning going on, uh, some make, people making some conscious decisions to scale back, uh, which certainly we, um, uh, we encourage people to do so, and to you know, establish a plan in terms of, I want to get out of debt, I need to get out of debt. And on the other side of the coin is, what happens if you don't get out of debt? Mm. What are the long-term implications? Well, do you think that's what it is? Uh, is this a message that is getting through that you and many, many, many others have been yelling from the mountaintops now for a while? Or is there something else going on? Is this simply that, that voice finally penetrating people's brains, or, are they, or is there some other thing that's happening here? I think it's a little too early to confirm that, uh, but certainly there's a lot of talk about it and reading different blogs and chats. It certainly is a topic of discussion that uh, people are more comfortable bringing up now in terms of, I need to rein in my spending. I need to get my debt levels under control. And so we certainly are seeing more people taking proactive action and asking for help. How do I do this? Where in the past, they struggled for years and years and years and really didn't accomplish a whole lot other than being being frustrated. Yeah, because you could also argue that while it's the message, it's also people realizing that there's a sense of nervousness out there that if something does go wrong with the economy, I don't want to be stuck. 
Well, there's lots of examples, too. Um, certainly, I, I, I feel for Albertans who've gone through a very mm. difficult, rough patch in the past few years. Fortunately, um, they're coming on it. We can see positive trends that people are recovering. Um, but it, it's just incredible how quickly things can go from bad to good. You know, I worry about the implications of NAFTA. That could have a dramatic impact from one coast to the other, depending upon uh, what comes out of it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Canadians owe a lot of money. $1.821 trillion is what we Canadians owe. That is up 3.3% from last quarter. That's the bad news. The good news is almost half of Canadians have reined in their debt, reined in their spending a bit, and have brought their amount of money they owe down. Scott Hanna is the president and CEO of the Credit Counseling Society of Canada. Uh, he is joining us. Scott, is there is debt always a bad thing? We talk about trying to rein it in. Is it always bad to have debt? No, it's not. I mean, without debt or access to credit, very few of us would be able to purchase a home or in some cases get a, a post-secondary education. Um, it provides security when we're traveling to use a credit card as opposed to having a lot of cash on us. So the credit, credit is a, a good tool, but it is a tool that has to be used carefully, like all tools. And where it becomes a problem is that when we make the decision to use credit without forethought, why am I taking out a loan? What do I need it for? How am I going to pay it back? What if my circumstances change? Do I have the ability to still manage my expenses? So what we see happen more often than not is the fact that people aren't sitting down ahead of time looking at what they need a loan for, what's comfortable, what fits in them with their budget, and what's their plan or strategy if their financial circumstances change. That's that planning process isn't happening enough, and that needs to change. So people make better decisions in terms of how they use credit so that they're the ones who are in control of their, their financial circumstances and not allowing their debts to master them. Well, some would even argue, and I don't know if I agree with this, but there are people, including our federal government, who have argued that debt is a sign of a healthy economy. If people are willing to go into debt and take chances with what they owe, it means they're confident that the economy is good and strong and they'll be able to get back out of it. I think in many cases there's a, a false sense of confidence in terms of things are okay. And we've talked to thousands of people in Alberta who were confident up until the, the markets changed. You know, had overextended themselves, lines of credit, um, a home, uh, a boat, all the extras, and no savings. So it's great to have confidence in using debt, take on a mortgage. That's usually a good sign that says, okay, I'm in a situation where I've got some funds to put down as a down payment, and I've got job security to manage a mortgage going forward. But it's the unsecured debt, the lines of credit, the credit cards, the car loans, that's, that's the kind of debt that can put people behind the eight ball in a relatively quick period of time because they don't think about the implications of what if things turn bad. Well, and the figure that this report has come out with, that the average Canadian owes $22,837, to me is slightly misleading because that doesn't sound like all that much money until you realize that's per person. That's every single living person in this country. So a family of four... If you, if the math, I mean, that's $100,000, not $22,000 that a family of four owes. And if you have one or maybe one and a half or two breadwinners in the family, still, it's not an insignificant amount of money at that point. It's not, especially when you're dealing with other challenges. Right now, gas prices are rising. Um, it's surprising that an extra $100 in gas fees over the course of a month has a real impact on our budgets. Most people are living up to their paychecks. Only only four to five percent um, is going towards savings. That's the average of the last four or five years. Huh. We're putting that small amount of money away on average. So that tells me that we're living right to our paychecks edge. So the fact that we're still having this debt, it's going to take the average individual uh, a number of years to pay it off, and with some concerted effort and discipline to do so. So, well, it doesn't seem that high. The implications of having that debt have a dramatic impact long term especially when we see the amount of of, uh, savings that people have saved up for retirement. For the most part, most of us haven't saved enough. Well, and there's one other thing about this, and that is that while the 50% roughly who have cut their debt, while that's a great thing, if you, let's say the the bar is $100 and the people who have cut their debt have taken it down to 90, if we're now up 
over that as far as a percentage overall, that means the people who have built their debt up have actually really built the debt up because now they've dragged everybody higher. That means they're spending a lot more than the other people are saving. Yeah, in terms of the amount of the increase, it's, yes. it's over 6%. So it's it's significantly higher. That's the worth of these individuals. And it doesn't take much for a change in a person's circumstances to have that dramatic impact. So while there's some real positive uh, notes here, there's still ca- cause for concern. And certainly, you know, Canada is one of those top three countries in the world that's uh, being looked at, scrutinized because of our personal debt levels, as that could have a dramatic impact on our economy long term. There are predictions the economy is going to slow. I mean, when do, this is your business. Do you think about that? Do you think about these people? Do you lose sleep about the fact that there are a lot of people who, if the economy really took a sudden slowdown, that they could be serious? We could have a lot of people seriously affected. Well, it's one of the things that we take into consideration with our long-term strategic planning, and that's certainly what we forecast in terms of seeing that with the economy slowing, more people will be in a difficult situation won't be able to manage this. And so we've been saying for years, while well, interest rates are low, now is the best time, if you can, consolidate your debts at a very low interest rate and pay them off and put your credit cards on ice until your debt until your debt is gone. So there's still great opportunity for Canadians to, to really reel in their debt and, re, and reduce it. It's just that that time to do so is slowly running out. Scott Hanna, the president and CEO of the Credit Counseling Society. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Take care, Scott. It is, uh, as I say, it is a good news, bad news. And debt is not a terrible thing always. For some people it is. But the fact that 50% of Canadians are looking at their debt and saying, I got to do something about this. I think I I take that as a positive thing. Because the one thing that Gen Xers and even baby boomers and millennials, everybody is accused of right across the board, is that we are a society of instant gratification. We want to get what we want. We want it now. And if I have to put it on debt, then I have to go in debt to get it, then I will do that. Well, if that's changing a little bit, that to me seems like it would be a positive thing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. You know by now all about the battle for free speech, free expression on university campuses. To say it's an issue is a massive understatement. Just look at the news, especially south of the border. There is a battle for hearts and minds and ears and eyeballs of what is allowed to be said, what should be said. Do we want free speech? Do we want free expression? Or do we want censorship? Do we want to protect feelings? Do we want to allow people to be challenged? It's a very complex issue. But many times in recent years, months, speakers, rallies, others have been shut down, have been screamed down, have been forced off campus, not allowed to speak at all, because some people didn't like the message they were bringing. This This flies, I think this flies in the face of what universities have done in the past. It used to be that this was the place where you would have a free discourse of ideas, love them or hate them, but that has changed a bit and it's created a headache for schools in a big way. What are the limits now of free speech? Should there even be limits of free speech? Well, McMaster recently, in light of this and in light of a situation they had where U of T professor Jordan Peterson was on campus and got shouted down and couldn't give his speech, Max set out to come out with a new policy to develop something that would be usable across the board on campus. And a few days ago, it was released. One of the people, one of the members of that group that helped create it, joins me now. His name is Dr. Neil McLaughlin. He's a sociology professor at McMaster. Sir, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Scott, for having me on. It's a really important issue. Well, before we move in, uh, let me betray my uh, my own personal opinion here. I, I think you and the committee have actually done about as good a job as I've seen from any other university anywhere as far as handling this. Uh, and I think you should be congratulated and commended because it um, too often it's too easy to just come to the conclusion, let's shut things down. You, you've, I think this is a great policy that you guys have drawn up. Well, thank you very much. I think it's you know, still having that conversations about it and the working process, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Absolutely. Now, that said, if I had been totally honest with you prior to reading this, I can't honestly say that based on what we've seen from different universities that my expectations were all that high because we have seen at a number of places 
a reticence to embrace the idea that you should be able to speak on campus, even if the opinions are unpopular. Again, that, that's something that has been a struggle elsewhere. Well, I think there is a silent majority of the students and the faculty who really are on the side of free speech and open dialogue. You know, So I think it's uh, that's starting to, to become apparent. And we've got some leadership from the university and I think we're moving in the right direction. Well, the, the report that you and the rest of the group, and I think there were uh, eight or nine people who were on the group, yes. uh, came up with really does lean hard towards openness and free expression, except in extenuating exceptional circumstances. And if I can, I want to read, it's a bit of a long paragraph, but I want to read a paragraph from it because I think it really kind of sums up what this is about. McMaster, this is the quote, McMaster University thus remains unequivocal in its commitment to freedom of expression, inquiry, and protest. And with the exception of those forms of expression already outlawed nationally by harassment, libel, and hate speech legislation, continues to stand for the vigorous, open, and civil dialogue and debate of all ideas, including those that some find offensive or odious, or that appear to conflict with the university's values of equity and inclusion. Indeed, it is precisely because McMaster is committed to expanding and deepening the diversity and inclusivity of its intellectual community that it will support and encourage the free exchange of ideas, an exchange that has allowed humanity historically to triumph over inhumanity. Censorship, by definition, is non-pedagogical and collides with the university's mission to provide meaningful opportunities for education both within and outside the classroom. Again, it's a long paragraph. But it's pretty clear that you on the panel, on the committee, lean towards the idea that we want to make sure that in when there's a challenge here, we're going to go towards openness. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you called it exactly right. I think that's where we're going. Was there a battle within, and you don't, I mean, obviously you're not going to say who was on saying what, but within the discussion, was everybody immediately on board with this or was there some debate about where this should go? Well, I think inside the committee there was a there was a, a strong consensus. There are people in the in the university who who don't take quite the same position, and we did a lot of co- consultation and talking to people. So, uh, you know, it's definitely not unanimous, and there'll be there'll be there'll be dissident dissonant voices, and that's part of the openness. The university is having these conversations, but the committee was definitely on board with this, and I think most students and faculty are on board with something something that looks like this. Had you expected that when you walked into the room to begin this process? Had you uh, sort of assumed that this is where it was going to end, or did you know where it was going to end? I, I, I felt confident that it was going to go in, in this direction, but uh, you know, I wasn't surprised at some of the, you know, the different viewpoints. I've seen these kinds of things on campus before. I was quite vocal uh, years ago in the Israeli apartheid conflict that happened at McMaster, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm someone who, who felt that uh, students who had a right to, to organize around the issues that they see fit and speak in languages that, uh, that other, other people had a problem with. And that was sort of from the left. And then some people from the right come and have some ideas that other people are, uh, have find problematic. I think that, you know, we need to, have to talk it out and uh, have all the perspectives out there. But that's, the, the law. that's always the funny part. And when I say funny, I don't mean ha-ha. I mean the ironic part about right. this. And that is that people are very vocal when it's something they don't agree with, but they're quite okay with language that may be offensive when it's something they do agree with. And so who becomes the arbiter of what is allowed to be said or not? It's just far more sensical to say, look, unless you're saying something that is calling for someone to be burned at a stake or whatever else, you can say it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I definitely come uh, from the, the left side and I'm willing to to speak out and, uh, and and leave a space open for people I disagree with on, on the conservative side, and it's part of a it's part of an open dialogue in a community where we're, where we're all speaking our minds. There are people who are hypocritical about that and, and don't go don't go with that, but I think uh, a lot of people feel that way, and that's where that's I think the place to go. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation. With Dr. Neil McLaughlin, who was one of the members of McMaster's ad hoc panel that was creating a policy about freedom of expression on campus, one that came down heavily on the side of letting free expression 
be the standard as opposed to leaning the other way. And just before the break, Doctor, you were mentioning that there are those on both sides politically, left or right, who are rather hypocritical because they will vocally, vigorously state their opinion, which may be offensive to somebody, but as soon as someone else offers a dissenting or other opinion that they find offensive, they don't want to hear that. That could be staff, that could be students, that could be whomever. Does that ever get called out on campus? Does anybody ever, in your experience, when someone does speak out and say that shouldn't be allowed to be said, does anyone ever say in the university realm, yeah, but what about when someone says this and someone else may find that offensive? Yeah, well, I, I think it gets said all the time. I mean, I think we have these conversations all the time. My position has always been that I really don't want the university administration to have the call to limit who gets to speak and, 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 and on what issues. I think the university should be more neutral and provide a space for a larger conversation. And I, and I don't want to have a, an authority that can decide. And I think a lot of faculty and students feel that way. Most I- undergrad students feel that way when I talk to them. Well, I'm not going to ask you your age, uh, but there was probably a time, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, I mean, that, that isn't that what university campuses really were all about once upon a time, that it was the place to speak freely, even though the positions may have been unpopular? Well, I'm 59, and but I remember uh, the conversations about this, and I, but it, there was a period before the Berkeley Free Speech Movement where there was a lot of left of critical ideas that you couldn't speak on campus. And say in Canada, a lot of indigenous uh, voices weren't really being heard. There were struggles, there was movements, free speech was opened up. Uh, sometimes I think we forgot those lessons and uh, we sort of slipped back a little bit. Mm. And I think that uh, I think uh, that's the way to go. Did the issue now, obviously McMaster is not Wilfrid Laurier University and probably during the whole Lindsay Shepard situation, I'm sure McMaster was glad they weren't Wilfrid Laurier. That was some bad, bad PR. But did that come up in the discussion? Because that really was a rather crystal clear example of what can happen if the wrong policy is adopted or if if no policy is adopted. You know, I've listened to what you had to say about uh, Lindsay Shepard and when you had her on the show, and I think it was a really good episode, and I totally agree with you. The one thing I would say, though, it wasn't so much an issue of free speech. It was really an issue of bad teaching and bad management from the university. They really, they really uh, blew it. <laughs> no question. No question. But, but ultimately, it, and I agree with you 100% on that one, but if the speech that she had referred to was not controversial, it never would have arisen. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, but, you know, faculty have a right to, to organize their classes the way they, they wish. And if, he, if the faculty had talked to the TA and said, I really don't want you to do this, I want you to do that, then they would have been uh, well within their rights. But to drag her into a meeting like that. Have you had any or much feedback about this since it came out? It's only like been... That. Unbelievable. Sorry, have you had much feedback about this since it came out? I know it's only been a few days, but has there been any kind of reaction from anyone on campus? Well, I think, you know, I've talked to some people who, who, who feel it goes a little bit too far on the free speech uh, issue. And, and, you know, and there was a lot of anger around the Jordan Peterson visit. And, and there is a lot of concern about a lot of uh, nasty thoughts and, and speech around campus. So I'm talking to people about that. I hear people who who have a little bit of a different viewpoint, and there's a conversation happening. Um, but I think there's going to be a strong consensus in the university around uh, around these issues. And does this extend now? Clearly, the, the impetus for this, I think, was that Jordan Peterson uh, speech. But does this go even into the classroom? If a student, for example, in a class stood up and said something as part of a discussion that flew in the face of political correctness or that the professor or other students were upset by, does this extend to that? Can he or she say that? Or can the teacher still say, no, you're not allowed to have those views or say those things in a classroom? Well, I think it's a little bit of a different issue. I think that it, there, is, there is a need for, you know, for good classroom management. So it's not quite an issue of free speech. But I do think there's a commitment among the faculty to to allow and, and a space where there's a diversity of political opinions to be heard in the classroom and to really get a lot of debating and discussing going on. And there's a commitment. I think we haven't spent enough time on that and talking about how to do that and, and how to make that comfortable.
accessible for everyone. And I think that's part of the report is to sort of spend some resources and spend some time and have some conversations among faculty and students about how to make that happen. It is an interesting word you just used, though, is to make it comfortable. Should we be making university comfortable? I, I'm not arguing that we should be, again, uh, making yeah. horrendous, intentionally horrendous statements, but should there be some discomfort? Yeah, I think, I think for sure. Just the boundary of what, what is, uh, what, where that is has to be kind of managed and thought through. But absolutely, the, the university classroom and the university environment should be a place with challenging ideas are worked out and expressed and debated. No question about that. And maybe there is a kind of a larger cultural trend where we've kind of pulled back from that a little bit, and we need to sort of move forward and, and think about how to do that. Dr. Neil McLaughlin, uh, who was on the panel for the Freedom of Expression p- report that has come out at McMaster, again, I applaud you because it was far, far, far better than I had even expected, and I think it's a great job, and I, I think you all did a very uh, an excellent piece of work on this. So thanks for taking the time, and thanks for doing that. Thank you for having these conversations. Uh, again, not to be uh, a cynic, not to be a skeptic, not to be negative, I did not expect the report to land this far on the side of freedom of expression, which it should have. This is the right decision. I just didn't expect it to. So again, I applaud those who took the frankly, in a university context, a brave position of saying we side with free expression, even if some people are offended, rather than censorship to protect everyone's delicate feelings. Good for them. And you can read it. It's online if you want to look it up. Look, Just look up McMaster Freedom of Expression Policy. You will find it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. You know what time it is? It's time to play Which is Ben's Favorite Story? Ben, of course, on the other side of the glass today, taking phone calls, making the music go, doing all that kind of stuff. I am going to give Ben two ridiculous stories from this week. Ben is going to decide which one is his favorite story of the day. Feel free to send me which one you prefer, which one is the most ridiculous, most ludicrous, whatever word you want to use, radley at 900chml.com. But let me give the two stories. Story number one. Just outside Tucson, Arizona, in Marana, Arizona, there was a car crash, a three-car accident, minor. Somebody was sent to hospital with minor injuries. Nobody terribly injured, thankfully. Anyway, police show up to sort out what has happened with this traffic accident, and they discover that the driver of one car that triggered the entire accident was inebriated. Too much to drink. Bad idea anytime to get behind the wheel of your car after you've been drinking. Terrible idea at the best of times. This, however, was not the best of times to be doing this because when the police got to the scene, the driver of that car was wearing, well, she was wearing her wedding dress. <laughs> she, she was on her way to her own wedding, drunk, when she caused a three-car accident. Now, so many questions about this story. A, why is she driving herself to her wedding? Surely she's got bridesmaids, or even if she doesn't have a limo, you know, someone who could take her there. Two, how miserable is she about getting married that she has to get hammered just to go through with the process? You, you would like think you would. Most people would like to be somewhat sober to remember the day. I I wanted to be remembering my own wedding. I don't want to wake up the next morning and go, what happened? I don't remember anything, man. I blacked out. Anyway, um, so yeah, she was arrested. She was booked. She was released into the custody or the care of her fiance. No word if the wedding went ahead. No word if they went ahead on time. No word about anything about this. But at, in driving to your own wedding in your wedding gown, drunk, and causing an accident. There's story number one. I'm That one is weird. But here's number two. Uh, this one comes to us from, well, right in the southern Ontario region. I think it's Newmarket where this happened. Is it Newmarket? I think it's Newmarket. Anyway, let's say Newmarket for now until I find out otherwise. There is a mother of, and you'll hear this story, I'm sure, in the next few days. There is a mother of four boys. Four young boys, four children, 
who has incurred the wrath of her neighbors. And why has she incurred the wrath of her neighbors, you say, with four young boys? Is it because they are taking the dog for a walk and allowing it to poop on the neighbor's lawn? Nope, nothing like that. Is it because they are four little bratty kids who are swearing all the time out in front of the neighbor's house? Nothing like that. Is it because they are, well, pick whatever you want. No, it's for none of those things. Whatever you can imagine, none of those things are the reason that she has incurred the wrath of her neighbors and received a letter from the neighbor. You want to know what it's for? The kids are making noise when they're playing outside during the winter. When those kids are in the backyard playing in the snow, they are yelling, they are shrieking, they are making noise. Would you please keep it down? We are running a respectable neighborhood around here, and we don't need your four little tots making noise when I am trying to have silence. Here's the letter that she received, dated March 2018. Dear occupants, parents... This is a friendly request. That's always a bad start. You know when you see this is a friendly request, it's not going to be friendly. This is a friendly request, which I felt is better done through the mail. Yeah, because you're a coward and you didn't want to look the person in the eye. I am one of several neighbors. Again, bull. That's like going to the drugstore and saying, yeah, I've got this rash. But Actually, sorry, it's not for me. It's for my friend Bob. No, I am one of several neighbors who are frustrated with the frequent screaming and shrieking your children make while playing in your backyard. This is very disruptive, whether we are outside or inside, and interrupts whatever we are doing, be it TV, reading, or napping. Oh, they sound like a bunch of fun, don't they? There are three choices for what they can do are reading, sleeping, or eating. Having the windows closed does not keep out the sound. We encourage you to correct your child when he screams by saying, please stop that yelling, or something like that. Perhaps if you supervise them while they were out in the backyard, it would help. It should be possible to have them play without screaming. And in the long run, be helpful to them. Other possibilities would be to take them to the park. Thank you, your neighbors. I'll tell you what I would do. I would buy the biggest, yappiest dog I could possibly find and have it outdoors all the time now. Anyway, Ben, you get two choices for what is your favorite story of the day. Which of those will you take as your favorite? My favorite one is going to have to be the wife that was, or soon to be wife. Soon to be wife. Uh, because I love the idea of her standing at the altar and having the priest or whoever is ordained <laughs> to do it. <laughs> He's going, do you take this man to be your lawfully headed wife? Lawfully wedded wife. Yep. I said, or husband. And her going... Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I do. Anyone got a Mickey? Uh, fantastic. And could you imagine if you're this drunk when you're getting married, imagine what the reception is going to be like. The neighbors are not going to be happy about that reception if they don't like the kids screaming in the backyard. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Something to consider. The other day, Alex Ovechkin, we're going to talk sports in a moment here. Alex Ovechkin, Washington Capitals, got his 600th NHL goal. 600. He still needs almost 300 more to catch Wayne Gretzky. That is remarkable. I, every time I hear about Wayne Gretzky's numbers, I realize Alex Ovechkin has been a great scorer now for however long he's been in the league, for 14 years. He is still only two-thirds of the way to Wayne Gretzky's totals, and Wayne Gretzky has more assists than anyone else has points. It is just crazy. Crazy. Anyway, let me bring in our friend Bob O'Neill from CHCH with his special intro music for today. One, two, three, into the phone. Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the dope. Ready to make an entrance, so back on the... Before I have to pull the strap off the cut. Give me the microphone first, so... All right, like Bubba, is that the intro song that we will stick with? Are you there? Yeah, now we're now we're talking. Oh yeah, now we're hitting the sweet spot here, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. Yes. All right, all right. Keep it coming, Ben. Never play that song again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think kid. That's for extra music too. That well, well, yeah, we could have that too. Uh, hey, Bob O'Neill from CHCH. Uh, listen, I don't want to be the bearer of all bad news. I don't want to be the angel of death. 
with my scythe and overcoat with my hood on like the uh, Grim Reaper. But I'm looking at what is happening down at Dunedin with your Toronto Blue Jays right now. And you've got Troy, Troy Tulowitzki, who will not be ready for the opening of the season, and who knows when he'll be ready. He's got bone spurs in his foot. You've got Marcus Stroman, who's got a shoulder thing that doesn't sound overly serious, but we don't really know. You've got questions all over the place, and now Josh Donaldson apparently has got that calf injury that bit into him last year, and it's returned. I'm not getting the feeling that things are moving towards a happy ending for this 2018 Toronto Blue Jays team. Well, you couldn't possibly have thought that this was going to be a big season for the Toronto Blue Jays, Scott. I mean, this is, I mean, first of all, the window of opportunity is come and gone. That's more than obvious, and I think we saw that last year, that this is a team that is, you know, tooling down now. Last year they were the, young, the oldest team in Major League Baseball, and changes need to be made. Now, I will say this, uh, the new regime, they've got a nice job in terms of recouping some of the young talent that was dished away by Alex Anthopoulos, and they've got some young guys that are coming up. And I think if you're a Blue Jay fan, uh, you have got to believe that this team is now sort of gearing up for 2020. But from what uh, I see right now, what the roster is, it's a bunch of uh, guys on one-year deals and spring training invites. And uh, I'm not saying that they are, 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 are tanking. But a lot of things have to go right, and a lot of uh, people have to remain health- healthy. And that first starts with the pitching staff. They're going to have to be healthy for pretty much the entire season for this team to even compete for a wild card. And I don't think the word tanking, I, I, I don't think anyone is thinking the Blue Jays are tanking. I think that they're going to need binding wire and duct tape to hold enough pe- players together to play for the season. This is a team that is... I don't expect Troy Tulowitzki to play 100 games. I really don't. He will not make it to the 100-game mark this year. I don't no, know about Josh Donaldson. I, I, you've seen what these, this organization has done every time they sort of talk about guys you know, maybe not being ready. In my opinion, Troy Tulowitzki will not be seen until the All-Star break. Wow. Well, so that would that. So I'm right. He won't play 100 games. Uh, but, I mean, okay. But there's, a, there's an issue you've got. It, depending on Josh Donaldson, how hurt he is or isn't, I don't know how many games he has. Uh, I don't expect that Russell Martin can rebound and be a highly, highly productive catcher again. I think he's just got so many miles on the chassis now that he may be okay, but he's not going to be great. I don't. There, there's not a guy on this roster right now that I would look at right now and say, I can imagine a career year from this guy. There's nobody. Well, I think that maybe the guy, maybe a Grychuk, maybe. You know, I think that really they're um, they're looking for that exact sort of thing. Is because a lot of these guys are on short term contracts. You're going to get a lot of high effort from guys. Guys that are going to be looking to extend their contracts. Guys that will be looking for some dough. You know, at the end of the year with maybe another franchise. This is very close to me, in my opinion, to what the Maple Leafs did two years ago when P.A. Parento was the leading scorer. It's going to be a bunch of hard-working guys. I will not accuse the, the Blue Jays of not being a hard-working franchise. I think you're going to see a lot of that from some guys. But uh, Donaldson, I don't think he'll be here by October. I think something will be done to try and get something for him. Uh, I don't see the, a long-term future with him as a Blue Jay. You talk about the Especially not at the money that he's going to be wanting. Well, it's what he wants, right? I mean, and I think really from this is his last opportunity at making a significant amount of money at 30 years old and he's got the calf injury you talked about there was a shoulder ailment uh the other day he was dehydrated uh i mean does he even want to be here i mean i'm not i'm not questioning his 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 will to win but does he even really want to be here uh and there's also the biggest thing to look at right now the new york yankees and the boston red sox um they are powerhouse teams and have done some things in the offseason to add to their roster, which I think would make them significantly better than, than the Toronto Blue Jays in the American League East. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. If you are adding, uh, what's his name, uh, from Florida? Giancarlo Stanton. Thank you, Giancarlo Stanton, yes. If you are adding Giancarlo Stanton to a team that already looked pretty good and had a bunch of young guys, uh, if I'm the Jays, I just... 
you're you're seriously you don't want bad things humanly to happen to other people, but you would not <laughs> mind if Giancarlo Stanton suffered a season-ending groin injury in spring training, you along know, with Aaron Judge, along with half that roster. And that, and you just said it there. Can you imagine the terror of you know being say a left-handed pitcher and you got to face those two right-handed bats, you know, for for anyone really for that matter. Um, it, it, it's going to be frightening for those guys. I mean, we, we're talking about a potential of, of, of probably of, of, it might end up to be 100 home runs between the two of them. Go back to Donaldson for a second, because I this is something that, and you mentioned, it sort of went right over my head when you said it, but then it clicked in. These days, how is it possible that an elite athlete ends up dehydrated? These guys have bottles of water and bottles of Gatorade and bottles of that Jose Bautista pink stuff, whatever that is. These guys are drinking their fluids non-stop. I have no idea how a professional athlete today can find himself dehydrated. It seems impossible. Scott, I, I, I don't say this very often, and I'm not sort of the conspiracy kind of guy, and this is why I actually threw a lollipop out to you there, is that I don't even know if Donaldson wants to be here. I, and, I, and I mean that sincerely in the sense of, like I said, I believe every time he takes the field, he's a winner, wants to win, will give you know, the necessary effort to, to, to do whatever he can, whenever he can. But I think the writing's on the wall for this team. He's 30 years old. He sees what's going on around him, not only with the Red Sox, not only with the Yankees, but look what's happening out in Anaheim and what they, the money that they're putting towards a team and going out and getting some players. Look what Texas are always willing to spend money to improve their ball club. He doesn't fit the, this team right now. And like I said, I, they'll never say it, but I believe they're building for 2020, and I don't believe Josh Donaldson is a part of this team at, you know, in 2020. So why would he want to be here? Well, no, he, he came in 2015, and that was the year that in August then they went and got all those guys. So he experienced that great, unbelievable season. Then he experiences the next year in Toronto, which was another winning season, another playoff berth. Last year you thought maybe they would go, so you could still be really motivated. didn't work out. But you're right. I, if he's looking around, there is no chance. I, I, I hate to be, again, such a pessimist. There is The Blue Jays will need to have someone sprinkle holy water on all their bats and all their gloves for any hope of being in the mix this year. I just can't see a scenario where, A, they have enough guys healthy enough to compete, but even right. if everybody's healthy, I can't see that they can be good enough to do it. And so if you're, the, if you're a guy who's a star who is looking for a big payday and because there's going to be money for him, payday with a winning team where you can ride out the remaining years of your life professionally on a contender... Toronto is the last place I'm looking right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, as you said, a lot of question marks and a lot of fill-in guys fill in the blank here. I mean, Gibby's going to have Gibby's got a lot of choice when he fills out his lineup card every day. But it's who puts together that right chemistry of guys. I mean, look at the outfield. All right, Steve Pierce. I mean, showed signs last year, but I mean, how many times has he been injured? He's injured right now. Um, you have Curtis Granderson who's going to be 37 years old and has shown some power, and that's great and all, but history has proven he's about a 250, 245 hitter, and it's not going to be go, get up from there, go up from there. Uh, he's going to give you your 20, 25 home runs. Uh, Dalton Pompey, a guy that's who's all, of, who's, all you know, who's had concussion problems in the past. Um, Randall Gritchick, I mean, the guy they got from the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, again, a good prospect, 26 years old, but hasn't had a history with injuries. So, and I'm just speaking about the outfield there, right? So, I mean, they've, and they've, they've trashed uh, Ezekiel Carrera. Yeah, so, he landed with Atlanta today or yesterday. So. There you go. So, like, uh, there's just a lot of question marks, and I think a lot of part-timers that are going to end up being full-timers in this lineup. Well, and you got, the other thing with Donaldson is... The Jays have Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who is a third baseman. Can he be a major league third baseman? Who knows? But he is a not, super. Not, no, Scott. There's under no. I mean, if the Jays are serious about 2020, or are are even serious about the development of this guy, 
Bull Bichette, Vladdy Guerrero, they cannot be seen this year. No, no, no. I'm not talking about them being seen this year. I'm saying if you're going to sign Donaldson, he's going to want a multi-year deal. He doesn't want a year or two. He's going to want five or six years. Absolutely, absolutely. And you've got this guy Guerrero coming up who plays that same position. That's my point. So you're going to say, yes. do we want to lock in Donaldson at $30 million a year for five years or six years no, when that no. spot is going to need to be freed up in a couple of years absolutely. or less for That's a guy right. who's a superstar? No, a guy like, as you said, a superstar player. Player like like Josh Donaldson, if they, I believe, and I and again I say this with all respect, I believe if the if the Jays were serious about keeping this guy for the long term and building their team around him, a deal would have been long done long ago, probably even last year. So I think the Jays are looking long term. They have been for some time, and they realize that they have an asset in Donaldson, but he doesn't. Like I said, his time is elsewhere and better served. In terms of his career, I think play, being played somewhere else in the American League, or at certain, or maybe even with the St. Louis Cardinals, who have been sniffing around at him, uh, I think at least on two occasions. Well, now that we've established that, everybody can know that they don't have to go to watch or listen to Blue Jays in the evenings ever. Just stay here on the Scott Radley Show because the Blue Jays will lose every game this year. So. <laughs> That was the intent of that discussion, but uh, it wasn't actually. But Except they are for your eight weeks vacation. Yeah, well, they are. However, I, I I will be shocked if the Blue Jays win seventy five games this year. I really will. I just don't see it because I think there's going to be so many. Anyway, let's. I want to go to something else here quickly. We'll be talking lots, I'm sure, about the Blue Jays over the course of the summer as we start getting down into multiple injuries and what are they going to do. You and I may get a tryout at some point. Your choice. If you could, if you were stuck on a desert island and you had a TV with only one channel, and I don't know why you would have a TV on a desert island, but if you did, yeah. and you could only watch the World Junior Tournament or March Madness, which would it be? Will it be March Madness? And, and that's not even a contest. Not even close. No. I, <laughs> How many times have I said this? And I know we've said that I've discussed this with you, you know, off radio, off camera. Call me with the World Juniors. Call me when the finals start, or like in, when at least you hit the semifinals, because everything else you can you can you know as we talk about the brackets with the with the March Madness, every crazy things happen. There's upsets in the first round. Every single round, there's upsets. There's never upsets in the world hockey in the world junior hockey championship. Not often. I mean, so to me, it's so predictable that the tournament loses a little bit of its luster. Whereas this basketball, you know, this basketball, they I mean, it's a it's a one and done, and there's all kinds of excitement. So I'll take the uh, the uh, NCAA tournament or even the, the the U Sports Final Eight over that. What I find really interesting about this comparison is you're not wrong. The World Juniors becomes way better when it goes to the playoffs. The round robin is whatever. And March Madness is really, really, really good at the beginning, by contrast, in the first two or three rounds. And I find it becomes more boring as it goes along because those upsets aren't quite as big a deal and those huge underdogs are not in play. I don't know if I really want to watch... Kansas versus you know North Carolina or these I'd rather watch the Bubba State from wherever uh, take on some massive team and give them a scare. That to me is the excitement of, well, of yeah, the March Madness. I mean, there's definitely a, an excitement part there. Though I will say that was sort of the trend for a couple of years, Scott. But in the last couple of years, the semifinals and finals have and final has been an outstanding game. Um, and you know, and played in front of these ginormous crowds, which yeah, is oh, always yeah, interesting always. to see. I mean, they play them in domes where you're putting talking about <laughs> seventy five, eighty thousand people watching a basketball game. I was um, a few years ago, Bob. They had when it was in Buffalo. One of the times, uh, Steph Curry, who now of course is a star with the Golden State Warriors, he played for a little tiny university called Davidson. And I was covering the thing. I was down there in Buffalo, and Davidson, and no one knew who Steph Curry was, except that he was the son of a guy who played for the Raptors at that time. They were playing against, I think it was Louisville, which is a huge school. And that was, to me, was the beauty. Davidson almost pulled off the upset. There's nothing school that no one even knew anything about. Or no, it was against Indiana, I think. Anyway, pushed them to the absolute limit, and it was fantastic. That, to me, I'm with you. I would rather watch March Madness because of that. But it's it is 
I don't know, the, the first two or three rounds, I will be tuned in all day long for. By the time it gets to the final four, ah, whatever. Yeah, I just I just think right now, um, if we're looking at the World Junior Hockey Championship right now, Scott, I think I, I think I feel very very confident in filling out a card of the of, of the of the team that's going to win a bronze, a silver, and a gold. I can't do that in 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 March Madness. I will say this before we let you go about March Madness and about brackets. Everyone knows what the brackets are. That's the, the thing you fill out that, about who's going to win what game. A number of years ago at The Spectator, we decided to do an experiment. And we had, I think, 10 people in the newsroom each fill out a bracket. But each was assigned a different method for filling out the bracket. So we had one person who did it based on what they actually thought, their choice of who they believe. They were a big diehard college basketball fan. They picked by their expertise. Then we had one that was picked purely by favorites versus not favorites. One that was picked by the cities that the or the states, I guess, that the universities were in that you would prefer of the two that were playing. Which would you? Which state would you prefer to visit? <laughs> and one was by someone, and they had to pick which was their favorite color of their uniforms. And one was which state would you or which city that the universities are from would you prefer to go shopping in? And all these things. And you want to know the funny part about it? Almost all of them were within like three or four by the end. Wow. <laughs> there was, there was, whatever your system was, it'll probably work. It'll probably work. Whatever your system, just don't bet all underdogs. I just love that Warren Buffett puts up that incredible amount of money for anyone that can be perfect. Is that, it's $1 billion, right? Like, it, 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 like I mean, one day it's going to happen. One day it's going to happen. I don't know when, but somehow, some way. And I, I remember, I can't remember exactly right off the top of my head what the odds are. I mean, they're, of course, they're absolutely astronomical to, to, basic, to basically predict that many games. It's, it's the same odds as you and I both growing an afro the same day. <laughs> but just imagine for a second, because it is, it's a, it's a $1 billion contest. If you get every single game right, and there's 68 games... And so, again, it's, it's 68 times 67 times 66 all the way down. You figure out what those numbers are, the chances of doing it. But imagine for a moment that someone has actually got it nailed, and now it's the night of the finals, and you have to get one more game right wow. to win a billion wow. dollars. I think you would die of a heart attack before that game started. Uh, yeah, you would best served to probably just go to the movies. <laughs> Go do something else. You're right, because to be on edge like that would be unbelievable. But I believe it will happen one day, and, it, and Mr. Buffett will have to fess up the $1 billion. I think Mr. Buffett will be long buried and already nothing but hair and bones <laughs> when the day comes that he's given away that prize. That's, um, again, the odds of that are just, it's, it's not even a, a lottery there are so many people that buy the tickets and it's luck and there's each person has a different number. So this one, it, it just, it seems implausible at best. Impossible is probably the better thing, but a few Hamiltonians, few Burlingtonites that are involved. Take a look. They've got a story in the paper tomorrow about one of them, a guy you've got to get to know if you're a Hamilton sports fan. Guy's name is Shay Gilgis Alexander. Uh, look him up. Learn about him. Watch him with Kentucky. This guy is going to be Hamilton's most famous athlete in about a year or two. You may as well get to know him. Bubba O'Neill, always love having Hamilton's most famous sportscaster. Let's put oh, it that please, way. Please, please, top that. Uh, thank you for doing this. Appreciate it, as always. Uh, next week, more Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre to bring you in. I, I'm very impressed there. That, that was... That was that was the that was the most impressive. Digging way down into my iPhone library. Actually, that was not on my iPhone library. You would not want to know what's in my iPhone music library, but it was probably not that. Not. No, you probably would not. But one day I'll show you. Probably a bunch of Rush. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> there is Rush in there, and Boston and Kansas. Oh, I don't even know what else is there. Some jo- Johnny Cash. <laughs> I've forgotten what else is on there. Oh, tired and, and Evanescence. <laughs> Bubs, thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.